Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Across the table is my good friend, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike Brown. How are you today? 10 out of 10. How are you today? I am great. Here we are. It's the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. And uh, I hope you all made it through the Christmas... Armageddon. Armageddon, the holiday Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway, it was what it was. (laughs) the views information and opinions expressed during the dark poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of curious cast its affiliate global news nor their parent company chorus entertainment dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Make sure your seat backs are in the full and upright position. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, especially for this episode. And let your folding trays are put away and locked. On October 14, 2007, after a grueling 20-hour journey from Poland, Robert Jakanski arrived at the YVR Airport's International Terminal in Richmond, British Columbia. Jakanski, who spoke nor read any English, was unable to read the signs directing him to what he should do next or where he should go. The confused man spent 10 hours in the airport wandering around the secure customs area. His mother was waiting for him with a friend only a few meters away in the public waiting area. Had the two been able to connect, this story would have had a very different conclusion, but they did not. She left the airport, frustrated, hours before her son's final moments. Exhausted and afraid, Mr. Jakanski became agitated. RCMP were called in to assist. Within 26 seconds of their initial encounter with Jakanski, he was shot twice with a taser at close range. All the while, another traveler, Paul Pritchard, captured the whole event on his digital camera. 
seconds after being hit with two 50,000-volt zaps from the conducted energy weapon, Paul Pritcher captures Robert Jakansky writhing on the ground, screaming in agony and struggling, as the police held him down with their knees on his neck. He died moments later on the floor of the airport. When Pritchard's damning 10-minute video hit the internet and news outlets a month later, there was a loud public outcry, calling for the heads of the officers involved in Jakansky's death. Memorials were held, the officers were reassigned for their safety, and a commission was fully impaneled to look into what had happened and hopefully prevent another incident like this one. You are listening to Dark Poutine, Episode 201, The Tragic Death of Robert Jakansky. Robert Jakansky was born on April 15, 1967, in Bilava, Poland, to his 21-year-old mother, Zofia. Robert was only 14 when his parents split, and Zofia was left with her son in a small, run-down apartment, scraping just to get by. From the book Blamed and Broken by Kurt Petrovich, quote, As a teen, Robert was troubled. Reports would eventually detail several arrests for theft and violence, all under the influence of alcohol. His education led him to trade school, where he trained to work as a miner. He had trouble finding a steady job, though, end quote. According to the Braidwood Commission report, after his mother immigrated to Canada, she settled in Kamloops, British Columbia. She married another Polish man who'd also emigrated here. He was 20 years older, named Vladislav Chazowski. Zofia took her new husband's last name, hoping to leave her old life, the time with Robert's father, behind her. It was another 10 years before Robert made the decision in late 2007 to join her in Canada. Zofia worked as a janitor and desperately missed her only child, Robert. They chatted often by phone, with Sophia pleading for Robert to come to Canada to be with her. Robert had been working odd jobs and had not really gotten very far in life. He finally acquiesced, thinking a new start in Canada would be just the ticket. Robert was hesitant, though. He'd never traveled before. Mr. Jakansky had been living in Gliwice, Poland a city of approximately 200,000, which is part of a metropolitan area around Katowice of approximately 2 million in southern Poland. Jakansky was trained as a typesetter, but did jobs as a handyman. His great passion was geography. He had atlases of Canada and was excited about immigrating to and traveling around Canada. But he was nervous because he didn't speak the language. Robert was a fairly social guy with a number of friends whom he played chess and bridge with. He was relatively healthy, not taking any prescription drugs. He smoked about 10 cigarettes a day, sometimes up to about 20 when he was nervous, especially in the time before his flight. Neighbors felt Robert was a social drinker. They'd never seen him drunk. This is contrary to some of the reports later on indicating he might have been alcoholic. As we mentioned, Robert only spoke Polish. He'd never flown before. In the days leading up to his departure, he grew increasingly anxious. His trip was rescheduled once, and on the night before his departure, he was panicky. Friends described him as shaking, vomiting, and clinging to a heat radiator in the apartment. Because of his nervousness, he had not slept for 48 hours before his flight. However, once he began the drive to the airport, he settled down. He flew to Frankfurt and then Vancouver, and his behavior on both flights was uneventful, according to witnesses. 
Zofia drove from Kamloops with a friend to meet her son. They arrived at the airport around 1.20 p.m. Zofia was excited to see Robert, but knew he'd never flown before and was worried about him. Her worry increased when she realized that she would not be able to meet him at the luggage carousels that she had promised him. The carousels were inside the secure customs hall to which the public was not allowed access. Zofia and her friend repeatedly sought assistance from a visitor information counselor, customer service agents, and border services officers about the traveler from Poland who had never flown before and spoke no English. Robert Chikansky's plane arrived from Poland at Vancouver International Airport at 3.15 p.m. on the afternoon of October 13, 2007. It was a busy afternoon. Jakansky had to wait for a whole hour in line for his turn to see a CBSA agent for passport screening upon entry into Canada. According to the Braidwood Commission report, as Mr. Jakansky approached the primary inspection line, he was sweating profusely and had a disturbed look on his face. With some assistance from a border services officer, he was able to complete his customs declaration card and he proceeded through the primary inspection line at 4.09 p.m. After seeing the first CBSA agent, Jakansky was sent to the immigration area to be further questioned as his papers indicated he was emigrating. Unable to make sense of the signs in the airport, he could not find the immigration area, and he wandered into the customs hall where he stayed for five entire hours, becoming frustrated and confused. As time went by, there was no sign of Robert. The arrivals-slash-departures board indicated that his flight had arrived on time. Zofia and her friend grew increasingly distressed, frustrated, and discouraged. According to the Braidwood Commission report, a border services officer, after searching the secondary immigration area, but not the entire customs hall, told them there was no way it would have taken this long for someone to get through immigration. Zofia thought maybe Robert had changed his mind. Perhaps he'd missed his flight. Without checking the computer, the CBSA officer also told them that, in all certainty, there was no landed immigrant from Poland there, and that they might as well go home. Sometime after 10 p.m., Mr. Jakansky's mother and her friend left the airport and drove back to Kamloops. That's ridiculous. What, what is ridiculous? Okay. Not that they drove back no, to Kamloops. No, no, not at all. So, when you buy your ticket, yes. you give them your passport number. Right. Right? your phone number, your email. Yeah. When you check in, it's all in the system. Mm -hmm. Everything's in the system. If you actually check in and don't get on the flight, but your luggage goes on, they hold the flight to take the luggage off, of yeah. course, in case there's a bomb. The entire thing is systemized. Mm. Them, just somebody was just, oh, I'm not going to do my job and help you find this person. Yeah. Because he, he would have been in the system. They would have known if they really looked Yeah. that he was there somewhere. I can't imagine how frustrated his mom must have been, you know, Extraordinary like... Extraordinarily frustrated. R really, really. Like, well, if you've lost somebody in an airport, the airport should be able to help you find that person. They know where you are. They know that if you got on the flight or not. They know when you if you got off the flight. If you obviously got on the flight, you got off the flight at the airport. Right. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it just sounds like... Somebody is like, I'm up, I'm, I'm up, my shift is over. Yeah, right? exactly. No, you got to look after people. Like, this, these are... Big international airports, right? And she knew that he hadn't flown before, so she had to be terribly concerned of course. about him. I mean, um, it from what I've read, uh, it, it, he wasn't 
he wasn't the most together person, you know, yeah, like he, cares, he didn't. Right. Like, but airports, it's, you know, everyone goes through airports. Mm-hmm. Everybody. But he has he had never done it before. Right. So this is a brand and, new experience. And that's my point, right? So yeah. you have you have lots of different people with different abilities, right. different experiences. Mm-hmm. You know? And the airport should be a safe place. Of anywhere on this planet, the airport with all the security yeah. should be the safe place to be. Especially after two thousand and one. This yeah. happened in two thousand seven, so Yeah, well maybe that's uh <laughs> some of the reason. Right. Everyone gets paranoid of anyone in an airport. That could have led to the reaction that we're going to see. Yeah. A full six hours after his arrival at 10.33 p.m., Robert Chikansky tried to exit the secure area through a turnstile where a CBSA agent was checking documentation. Chikansky was stopped and turned around by the officer who noted that his passport indicated that he still had not been through immigration. Jakansky spoke to one of the agents in Polish. According to an investigation done by the Vancouver Sun after a Freedom of Information request, the only words that anyone understood of Jakansky's were Kamloops and something about his mother. Jakansky was then escorted to the immigration office. A worn-out Robert Jakansky was finally interviewed by two immigration officers. The officer said although he seemed tired, he did not seem to have any other issues, medical or otherwise. His hair was uncombed and his shirt untucked, but that's par for the course. Robert Jakansky's behavior was essentially normal for what he'd been through that day. He was doing nothing out of the ordinary for someone who'd traveled so far and had been wandering around aimlessly without sleep or food in the airport for hours. One officer said Jakansky seemed mildly agitated by his own lack of English skills, but there was nothing else unusual. Two hours after arriving at the immigration area and undergoing his interview, at 12.38 a.m., Robert Jakansky was escorted out of the customs area by a CBSA agent, whom Jakansky thanked and bade goodnight in Polish as he departed. At 12.48, Robert Jakansky left the secure area and made his way into the public waiting area where he would have met his mother, were she still there. It wasn't clear what was running through Robert Jakansky's mind at this point, but it didn't take long before he wandered back into the secure area. It was then that he became agitated and began throwing things around, against the glass, catching the attention of the people in the public waiting area. One of those watching was Paul Pritchard, returning home after a teaching stint in China. Pritchard's dad had been ill with lung cancer and had requested for his son to come home. Paul was awaiting an early morning connecting flight to Vancouver Island and was crashing on the benches in the airport until it was time to catch the next flight. After watching a confrontation between Robert Jakansky, who was blocking the doors with his bags, and a frustrated limo driver at around 1.20 a.m., Paul Pritchard began shooting video with his camera. Robert Jakansky looked anything but threatening in his tan pants, striped polo shirt, and ivory-colored windbreaker, but he was clearly fed up. A federal report on the incident described the scene in Pritchard's video. Quote, a clear glass wall separates the secure and public areas. Leading into the public area from the doors is a waist-high barrier consisting of a wooden railing with a glass partition to the floor. The barrier provides a pathway for persons exiting the secure arrivals area. Just inside the doors to the secure area, a counter can be seen stretching to the right of the doors. A sign above the counter indicates it is the airport greeting center. It's in English. 
On the counter sits a computer and other items, presumably the property of YVR. No YVR or CBSA employees are seen at the counter. The video shows two green swivel chairs blocking the point where the doors into the secure area would normally close. The chairs are seen to act as physical barriers to closing the doors. Jakansky had put them there, causing the doors to attempt to close and then immediately open again because of the blockage. Mr. Jakansky could be seen in the video placing a small wooden table on the floor next to the chairs, presumably to further block them from closing. Mr. Jakansky then walks to the counter, picks up a clipboard in his right hand, and walks back to the doors. He appears to be quite upset and agitated. The clipboard can be seen shaking as he holds it. He can be heard on the video to be saying some words translated below, and can be heard to be breathing heavily. He also appears to be perspiring heavily. According to the Braidwood Commission report, members of the public and people working at the airport used various words to describe his behaviors. Unusual, upset, nervous, angry, distraught, and bizarre. He was sweating, appeared to be talking to himself, and at one point hit the glass doors with his hands in an attempt to get back into the lounge. Several people approached and talked to him, but could not communicate with him. None felt threatened by him, although several were reluctant to encroach on his territory. Several people who were in the public meeting area called 911 or the airport's operations center about the disturbance. At 1.23 a.m., the operations center called the RCMP about an apparently intoxicated 40-year-old male in the International Reception Lounge throwing suitcases and chairs around. The airport's own security personnel were also dispatched to the scene, but on their arrival, they did not approach Mr. Chikansky in accordance with their observant report mandate. Security was there awaiting the RCMP's arrival, monitoring the situation. Robert Chikansky cried out in Polish, I will trash this office. Fuck off. After another passenger tried to assist, believing he was speaking Russian, Jakansky yelled, also in Polish, I will smash the entire desk. Leave me alone, everybody. Go away, I said. End quote. From the federal report into the death of Robert Jakansky, quote, Four RCMP members were on duty at YVR during the evening of Saturday, October 13th and early hours of Sunday, October 14th, 2007. Presumably because the shift had been quiet and no calls for assistance had been received by these members, all four were present at the RCMP sub-office at YVR at the time the complaints were received concerning a male acting erratically in the international arrivals area, which was less than two minutes away by car. The complaint was received from RCMP dispatch by Constable Quessy Millington, one of the four members on duty. Millington had been with the RCMP for two and a half years and was the one equipped with a Model X-26E taser. The other members present and responding to the call were Constable Jerry Rundell, a two-year veteran of the force, Constable Bill Bentley, who'd been a member for a year and a half, and the most senior member, Corporal Benjamin Monty Robinson. Robinson was an 11-year veteran of the RCMP and shift supervisor on duty at YVR that night. The four RCMP officers, all traveling in separate cars, arrived almost simultaneously at 1.28 a.m. And we'll take a break right here. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. 
Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? I, I know you were living in the UK at the time. Were you aware of this case? What Was it on the radar over there? Yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't know this many details, mm -hmm. um, but I can remember seeing it because I, at the time, was flying a lot. Okay. Like, a lot. 30 long haul flights a year. Wow. So it was of interest because I've been in a lot of airports where the security couldn't understand English. Right. Right. And I mean, being an English speaker of the one language that people will most likely speak in mm -hmm. an airport yeah. as the second language is English. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I was very aware of it because I, you know, <laughs> my joke is I know like every nook and cranny of airports in 54 countries around the world, right? So what was the most difficult airport to navigate? Um, the most difficult to navigate... Uh, well, when I first, when I first moved to Russia, mm -hmm. it was difficult because nobody spoke English at all. Right. And the signage was in Cyrillic and I couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. My worst airport experience was Nigeria. Why so? Well, luckily I was told, here's a picture of your driver. Do not pass customs until you see that person. Yeah. And he'll take you. And they took me in like armored car sort of stuff to the, to the, but to get back into the airport, mm -hmm. even though I had my ticket, I needed to pay a bribe to get into the airport yeah. to get my flight. So yes, I heard about this and I was shocked that it was Canada. Mm -hmm. If I'm honest with you. Yeah. I mean, Vancouver airport has a very good reputation globally. It did then. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was shocked that it happened in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's not what you expect. From the Federal Report, quote, The RCMP members had no way of knowing that Mr. Jakansky had been traveling for many hours, that he had apparently consumed no food and had very little fluids to drink, nor could they be expected to gauge the level of Mr. Jakansky's state of mind or his possible frustration at not meeting his mother as he had no doubt anticipated would happen when he arrived in Canada, end quote. As the RCMP members entered the building, people were milling about, excited by the goings-on on the other side of the glass in the secure area where Jakansky was. As the officers approached, one of the bystanders spoke to Constable Millington, saying, He doesn't understand English. He speaks Russian. Constable Bentley turned to Millington and asked whether he had a taser. Millington said yes. There was no other discussion between the officers or with the other bystanders prior to entering the secure area to interact with Robert Jakansky. The police observed Jakansky pacing back and forth as they approached. The man was sweating and breathing heavily, and his eyes were really wide. Constable Millington suspected that Mr. Jakansky was under the influence of a drug or alcohol, but he could not smell any alcohol. According to the Federal Inquiry report on the incident, Constables Millington and Bentley were the first two to hop over the barrier wall leading to the doors to the secure area at approximately the 323 mark in Paul Pritchard's video. As the members entered the secure area, a voice can be heard to say, How are you, sir? Then, How's it going, bud? That had been Constable Bentley. 
things escalated over the next few seconds. Remember, folks, the whole interaction from initial contact to the use of the taser takes only 26 seconds. The following is from the Federal Report looking into Robert Jakansky's death. The timestamps are from Paul Pritchard's video recording of the incident. At the 3.37 mark, the members can be seen talking with Mr. Jakansky, who is approximately two meters inside the secure area, near his luggage. Mr. Jakansky's arms are at his sides and his stance does not appear combative. At the 341 mark, Mr. Jakansky throws his arms in the air and steps away from the members toward the counter. The members follow and use hand gestures to indicate to Mr. Jakansky where they would like him to stand. At this point, Mr. Jakansky is standing in front of the counter with his back to the glass wall and to the camera. The view of him and the members facing him is obstructed by the counter, which is approximately just above waist height. The members fan out in a semicircle in front of him. The video indicates that the members were giving direction to Mr. Jakansky and that Mr. Jakansky was speaking to the members. His attention appears to be directed primarily to Corporal Robinson. None of the members spoke Polish and Mr. Jakansky spoke no English. At the 343 mark, Mr. Jakansky spoke words in Polish, later translated as, Leave me alone, leave me alone. Did you become stupid? The translator also indicated that this could also mean, Are you out of your mind? Why? At the 345 mark, Mr. Jakansky appears to pick something up from the counter, later determined to be a stapler. At the 346 mark, Constable Bentley can be seen to take a step back from Mr. Jakansky. Simultaneously, the other members appear to take note of something Mr. Jakansky is holding. Corporal Robinson can be seen to withdraw his ASP baton from his holster, but not deploy it. By the 348 mark, the other members have taken up positions around Mr. Jakansky and are approximately two meters away from him. Mr. Jakansky can be heard speaking loudly to the members. The video shows Constable Millington, who was the only member equipped with a taser that night, in the nine o'clock position, to the left of Mr. Jakansky. Next, in the 11 o'clock position was Corporal Robinson. To Mr. Jakansky's 1 o'clock position was Constable Rundell. Constable Bentley was to Mr. Jakansky's 3 o'clock position. At that point, Mr. Jakansky is standing facing the members his hands cannot be seen. In their statements, members indicated that Mr. Jakansky grabbed a stapler from the counter and that they believed he was going to use it as a weapon. At the 349 mark, 26 seconds after the members first made contact with Mr. Jakansky, the conducted energy weapon, CEW, can be heard to discharge. Constable Millington is out of frame at this time, but at the 351 mark, he can be seen coming into frame holding the CEW. In his statement to IHIT, Corporal Robinson said that he gave an instruction to Constable Millington to deploy the CEW simultaneous with Constable Millington deploying it on his own. At the 351 mark, Corporal Robinson can be seen to reholster his still-extended ASP baton. Mr. Jakansky reacts to the deployment of the CEW immediately. His arms flail up in the air at the 352 mark. An object, later identified as an open stapler, can be seen in Mr. Jakansky's right hand. Mr. Jakansky then stumbles several steps to his right, and at the 355 mark he falls to the floor, past the end of the counter, Mr. Jakansky can be seen through the glass wall writhing on the floor and screaming. At the 404 mark, Corporal Robinson moves in and begins to subdue Mr. Jakansky. 
is joined at 406 by Constable Rendell, and at the 410 mark, Constable Bentley and Millington join in. Constable Millington still has the CEW in his right hand, and his assistance is to hold Mr. Jakansky's feet with his free left hand. Mr. Jakansky continues to ride throughout the attempts to subdue him. At the 412 mark, Constable Millington stands and directs his attention to the CEW, which he holds facing Mr. Jakansky. Over the next two seconds, someone, likely Corporal Robinson, is heard to shout, hit him again, hit him again. Over the next two seconds, someone, likely Constable Millington, is heard to say, got him, got him. At the 419 mark, a YVR security guard begins to block the frame and he is joined at the 420 mark by another man. The two fully obscure the view. It is clear, however, that the RCMP members were attempting to restrain Mr. Jakansky and that Mr. Jakansky continued to struggle. According to witness statements and statements from the involved RCMP members, Mr. Jakansky received no blows from fists, feet, or batons. Neither the baton nor pepper spray was used by the members to subdue Mr. Jakansky. At approximately the 423 mark, Constable Millington is seen to move around Mr. Jakansky and insert himself with the other members close to Mr. Jakansky. Millington indicated in his statement that he administered the CEW in push-stun mode to Mr. Jakansky twice during this period. Push-stun mode means that the electrodes of the CEW were held to Mr. Jakansky's body directly. At the 432 mark, Corporal Robinson can be seen kneeling on Mr. Jakansky's upper body. At this time, a male voice, presumably a YVR employee, can be heard in the public waiting area saying, Greg, Cathay is coming through with 300 plus. What do you want to do? Presumably, this is a reference to a Cathay Pacific flight from which passengers were due to exit via these doors shortly. No evidence has been located to indicate that RCMP members were aware of any such flight or that the presence of these Cathay Pacific passengers affected how they dealt with Mr. Jakansky. By approximately the 4.55 mark, Mr. Jakansky's struggles lessen considerably and his moans sound as though he is becoming exhausted. At this point, Constable Bentley is seen straddling and sitting on Mr. Jakansky's thighs. Constable Rundell is near his waist attempting to handcuff Mr. Jakansky. Corporal Robinson is hidden behind onlookers but is believed to be near Mr. Jakansky's head and shoulder area, controlling his upper body movements. At the 501 mark, onlookers clear and Corporal Robinson can be seen kneeling on Mr. Jakansky's upper back and shoulder area. Mr. Jakansky is lying on his stomach during the struggle. At the 505 mark, Constable Bentley gets up from Mr. Jakansky's thighs and walks around to Mr. Jakansky's head. At 510, he, he picks up his baton, which he has deployed during the interaction with Mr. Jakansky. The baton was not used during the altercation. Constable Bentley had dropped it to the floor while assisting in subduing Mr. Jakansky. At the 517 mark, Mr. Jakansky continues to struggle. Corporal Robinson appears to have placed a considerable amount of his weight on Mr. Jakansky's upper body. By the 519 mark, it appears that Corporal Robinson's right shin and ankle are pressing down on the back of Mr. Jakansky's neck. He remains in this position until the 546 mark of the video. At 531, Constable Bentley begins to collapse his baton. Corporal Robinson and Constable Rundell remain by Mr. Jakansky, whose movement has, by this time, virtually stopped. By the 553 mark, the members appear to be looking at one another, exchanging words. 
No one appears to check on Mr. Jakansky or take any specific actions to administer first aid. The taser had been deployed against Robert Jakansky a total of five times. Corporal Benjamin Monty Robinson later stated that when he checked for a pulse, he found that Robert's heart had stopped. At 1.31.14, BC Ambulance Service received a call from YVR Operations. The call was logged as a non-alert overdose and was assigned a routine priority response. 1.32.25, Constable Bentley requested by police radio that Emergency Health Services, EHS, also referred to as BC Ambulance Service, be dispatched. Constable Bentley requested that EHS use a routine priority for the call. This meant that EHS should attend, but there was no urgency to the need for medical personnel. At 1.40, Richmond Fire Department personnel arrived at YVR. Fire Captain Graham of Richmond Fire Rescue later said that from the time the firefighters arrived until the second BC ambulance arrived, the four RCMP officers were, quote, standing by. It looked like three on one, three together, and then one guy standing alone. They were not assisting the patient in any way, end quote. He said that he saw it as being unprofessional. Quote, to see a patient face down, handcuffed, and not being tended to in some way, shape, or form, I thought, something's not right here. And later added, I didn't think he was alive. Firefighter Cameron told the Braidwood Inquiry that when he entered the International Reception Lounge, he saw Mr. Jakansky lying on his stomach with his face turned to the left, with his hands cuffed behind his back. Two or three RCMP officers were standing by Mr. Jakansky's feet, but there was no one at his head. He agreed that when he arrived, what he saw was a scene where people were not showing a lot of concern about Mr. Jakansky's health or the danger of him dying. First responders felt no pulse and began to work on Robert Jakansky. They applied the defibrillator leads to determine the state of Jakansky's heart. He was blue in color and needed oxygen. When the defibrillator is activated, it will go through a sequence to determine whether it should shock the patient to restore the heart rhythm. It will only apply a shock in the case of two rhythms, ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. As Jakansky showed no heart activity at all, the message came back, no shock advised. Three different firefighters began doing CPR on Jakansky for the next 25 minutes until one of the advanced life support paramedics instructed them to stop when the paramedic pronounced death after talking with an emergency department physician at Richmond General Hospital. At approximately 2.10 on October 14, 2007, Mr. Jakansky's mother, Zofia, called the CBSA at YVR to inquire about her son, saying she was the mother of Robert from Poland. Unaware of Jakansky's interactions with RCMP, and his subsequent death, the officer advised her that he had seen her son earlier in the evening and that Mr. Jakansky had left the CBSA area. She was later informed that her son had passed away. She also gave many tearful interviews after that, asking why this had happened. Word of the incident got out to the media, and it was a big story in the next few days. The RCMP was not giving a lot of information about what had happened, only a general description of the interaction and stating that they were investigating the incident. The video had not been made available to the public at this point. Pritchard did not have it anymore. Police, present at the scene, had confiscated Paul Pritchard's camera and memory card claiming it contained evidence and that he needed to surrender it. 
Pritchard gave it to them, and they said they'd have it back to him in 48 hours. But when he did get it back, the camera had a different memory card in it, one that did not contain the video. Cops claimed giving the video to Pritchard would have a negative effect on the investigation. From a CBC article, quote, Corporal Dale Carr of the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team told CBC News that releasing the video would compromise the case. It's clear that he wants to release that to the media and therefore any potential witnesses would view it and then it would be compromised and those witness accounts would be tossed aside, Carr said. Pritchard denied suggestions the lawsuit was motivated by a desire to sell the tape to the media. No, it has nothing to do with that. I'm just trying to get it out there, he said. It wasn't such a big thing at the beginning, but now it's being covered up. It's making me wonder what's on there that they are trying to cover up. After some legal wrangling, a month later, Paul Pritchard was given the card with the video still intact. Despite his denials of a desire for profit, Pritchard then sold the video to the media on November 14, 2007. Three television outlets paid fees to Pritchard for the right to broadcast the video. When the public saw it, the lid blew off. There were public protests against the use of force and the deployment of a taser against unarmed Robert Jakansky. Uh I hope he got a million dollars from the media for that um, because the footage and the change, hopefully, that came from it, I think that's where we're going with this, would have been worth it. Yeah. Um, I, th- You know... Th- this really, really bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, as a public, it's up to us to watch the watchman. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Um, if you think about it, society gives, you know, we give large scale powers to police and powers that can be easily abused. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they are our police. They're our police. Yeah. We pay for them. We put them there. Mm-hmm. We, the public, right? Society puts them there. Um, and I think, you know, we have the ability now more than ever with our cameras on every phone to hold them to account. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, y- you know, at the same time, I have to say policing is a risky job, right? Yeah. It's, t- it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. They come face to face with the worst of human nature. Yeah. And that's why we hire people to do this (laughs) because it's, you know, we need it. At the same time though, um, I don't mean to cut you off, but at the same time, um, even though they, they they're seeing the worst of the worst every day. Yeah. Um, maybe sometimes the person that they run into isn't necessarily the worst of the worst. And they have that in their mind that that's what they're going to see. Uh, Absolutely. And, and you know, the police, they, Sometimes if you're not a police officer and you see somebody being subdued, mm-hmm. it can look um, excessively violent, yeah. but actually it's within proper training because it's you, what needs to happen needs, given the situation. Needs to happen. I don't think this is a case, but yeah. the flip side of that is unwarranted aggressiveness is a symptom of inadequacy, right? And comp- compensation for inadequacy. So if you get a police officer who's being really sort of, you know, unwarrantedly aggressive, yeah. there's a problem there with either training or with that person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if a police officer is in your face and you're recording, um, as long as you're not in the melee, as long as you're not getting in the way, you know, they they shouldn't be angry if you're recording if they're not doing anything that they shouldn't be doing. Right. 
and you know can police can police stop you from taking photos no they can't they absolutely cannot um so what what do you do right so i found something in the ottawa citizen here right mm -hmm. so what do you do if you're recording and the police says stop okay politely and respectfully inform them that they have no authority to issue such an order that there is no law in canada that forbids you from taking pictures in a public space and if they act aggressively towards you or threaten to seize your your device calmly inform them that they will face an official complaint and possibly criminal charges for illegal search and seizure mm -hmm. it's important for all of us to know that and if you think about it you know i am a big believer right i have yeah. relatives who are police there's you know there's a lot of good eggs who are police sure and there's a lot of some bad apples that are police yeah right but as citizens i think we should be respectful for to police but the greater onus is on the police to re be respectful to citizens mm -hmm. right um even if we're taking pictures of them that could embarrass them later because they've sworn an oath to uphold the law and possessing a badge or a gun is not an excuse for petty tyranny no and the police this is important the police exist to ensure the safety of the public not to control the public yeah that's correct yeah yeah that is correct i'll get off my high horse now well yeah i but, get i get riled up with this stuff. but this is one that i this is the reason that i'm glad that you're the one doing this with me because i knew that you would have this kind of input i mean i look at that video the guy was clearly upset he was upset he was frustrated hours and hours of time in this airport doesn't speak the language People are, you know, in his face oh, trying God. to help, but they're making Mike, it worse. I've, I've thrown hissy fits when I'm hangry. Yeah, exactly. Right? The guy hadn't eaten in a day. <laughs> right. And like the frustration and the confusion and, you know, he was doing nothing that warranted being killed. Well, he was armed with a stapler, Matthew. For fuck's sake. Right? What was he going to do? He was going to staple things. Uh, I have been stapled by accident. <laughs> And let me tell you, it was not a life-threatening thing. I'm just picturing you being stapled. An electric stapler was an accident. Bajink. It goes into your skin. It hurts a little bit. Yeah. You pull it out, and that's the end of it. Maybe you get like a, yeah. you have to put some uh, ointment on it. Yeah. yeah. Like, really? You're going to kill a guy? You're going to tase him because he's got a bloody stapler yeah. in his hand? And, you know, and again, like, I'm, you know me, Mike, I'm not anti-police. No, me but neither. I, but I'm anti-abuse of power. Yeah, right? me too. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, I just, <laughs> this one really bothered me. It really bothers me because they're trying to cover it up. Mm -hmm. That's all that was about. Yeah. Hoping, oh, Hoping, you know what? They, they hoped he wouldn't notice that there was a different card in there without the visuals. They were every stage, they were just trying to, yeah, without saying it's officially season or taking away because they knew they're not allowed to. They just faked it and they hoped for the best and they got nailed. Yeah, staple gunned, staple, they got stapled to the wall. <laughs>
will shoot you a jolt or two. If you look crazy, the cops without a clue will blame the victim for dying while the chief of police is lying. So please be sweet and cops you greet or we'll point a taser at you. The RCMP Commissioner William J.S. Elliott quickly put together a press release to address the public outcry. In it, he indicated the RCMP's intent to cooperate with the investigation. Elliott said, quote, The RCMP fully supports these investigations and is anxious to learn as much as possible about this tragic event. For the time being, the four RCMP officers directly involved in the events of October 14, 2007, have been assigned to other duties. The RCMP has also undertaken an examination of our policies and procedure relating to conducted energy weapons, commonly called tasers, and will be providing a report to the Minister of Public Safety. We will further consider our policies and procedures in light of the findings and recommendations flowing from the investigations currently underway, end quote. Following the death of Mr. Jakansky in 2007, the government of British Columbia announced the commitment to hold a commission of inquiry into the circumstances surrounding his death. On February 15, 2008, Thomas R. Braidwood, QC, was appointed to the Public Inquiry Act as commissioner of two separate inquiries. One inquiry was to review the use of conducted energy weapons in British Columbia, while the other was to inquire into the report on the circumstances of the death of Mr. Jakansky. From the federal report on the incident, quote, The commission did not accept the version of events as presented by the four responding RCMP members. The statements provided by the members are sparse in terms of detail of the events and the thought processes of the members as events unfolded. When tracked against the witness video, the recollections of the members fall short of a credible statement of the events as they actually unfolded. The fact that the members met together prior to providing statements caused the commission to further question their versions of events. End quote. The final report by Justice Braidwood stated that the RCMP officers were not justified in using the CEW on Robert Jakansky and that the five deployments of the CEW and the physical struggle with the four RCMP officers contributed substantially to Mr. Jakansky's death. As well as the Braidwood Commission, another 11 related inquiries were held by various authorities either involved in or with an interest in the incident. Many have had implications leading to changes in policy to ensure that another incident like this one does not again take place. According to CBC, RCMP Deputy Commissioner for the Pacific Region Gary Bass formally apologized to Sofia Chizowski during a press conference held two years after her son's death. Quote, I want to apologize for our role in this tragic death of your son, Robert Jakansky, said Bass. The RCMP has learned much from this tragic incident. End quote. From the same CBC article, sitting beside Bass, a tearful Chizowski also read a statement saying, I thank you and I accept your apology. It has been two and a half years since my son died, said Chizowski. There was not a single day that I did not cry and analyze what could have been done to avoid this tragedy. I believe the settlement and the apologies given by the federal and provincial authorities will help begin the healing process and clear the path toward my future. It is good to see some changes in policies and procedures adopted by the government. She said, I'm a huge believer that 
forgiveness is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you imagine forgiving somebody who was partially involved with the death of your son? Yeah. But for me, like forgiveness, if I don't forgive people, I, I just rot inside. Well, it's, it's that whole yeah. idea that resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Yeah. 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 I've indulged in resentment a lot in my life. And you don't you know, resent me, do you? No, not yet. okay Uh, but you know yeah you're right like every time I had to forgive what happened to me Mm -hmm. you know uh, the the thing I talked about in episode in episode 10 many times in your life yes not just that many times many times but but that was something that was perpetrated against me I I don't I don't have to um I don't have to accept that person as they are. No. I don't. I just have to say, okay, what they did to me, I forgive them so I can move on. Yeah. So I can move on from it. Yeah. It's not for them. Well, it is in a way. But you become bitter, bitter, bitter. If you yeah. If you don't learn to forgive, you become a bitter, bitter, bitter person. Yeah. I've seen it. So holding on to that anger for years and years. I mean, we see it a lot on the internet now. Yeah. Um, that's why I don't like Twitter because hanging out on Twitter are all those bitter people who finally feel like they have a voice to rant and rave uh, against the in, uh, injustices that they perceive have been yeah. perpetrated against them. And maybe they are real injustices that have been perpetrated against them. But I don't, I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't feel like a positive, all this anger, all this hate does not feel like the right thing. And it's not a conversation that I want to be involved in. So when I tweet, it's like, here's the show. You know, I don't get in, I can't get involved in the conversations. I don't even really want to get involved in the conversations anymore on Facebook at all, Mm -hmm. at all. Because I don't feel it takes me to a healthy place. Can you imagine? So remember that episode you did about the girl that was killed on the island? Mm -hmm. It was a boy and a girl. Yeah. That killed her. Yeah. And the parents, I think I brought this up before, the parents forgave him. Yes. And Rena actually, Virk. And they actually visited with him and he yeah. visited with them. And like, if those people can get to a good place mm-hmm. with that, you know, you can let go of shit on Facebook. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, like, look at Rena Virk's parents. Yeah. And think... Am I holding a resentment over somebody with that somebody said on Facebook really worthwhile when yeah. when parents of somebody who's involved with their child's death can actually mm-hmm. help him move forward in life? Yeah. Right. And moving forward, yeah, exactly. Like and, and help they helped him yeah. become a better person, right? Yeah. Um I I've said this a couple of times on the show about forgiveness and um I watched the and if you know, people hear me repeating myself it's whatever. It's still relevant. Don't hold the reason. Exactly. Um, so Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, mm-hmm. when he was allocuting, mm-hmm. uh, after he was done saying, I killed this person, guilty, 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 he had to listen to the families. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those families, rightfully so, yeah. were still angry. And it gave them a, okay, finally I can tell and this person. Don't get me wrong. I'm, he, n- I'm not going to, if somebody's, 
say, been killed in your family. Yeah. I'm not bitching at you to for, say for, don't for be not angry. forgiving. I'm yeah. I'm saying for me, yeah, I, I would die inside. It's the only thing I could do is is to somehow get right. there over time. We're right. not saying this is for everybody. No. So Gary Ridgway was stoic and stone faced as all this hate and vitriol is coming toward him. When he cracked was when a man whose daughter had been murdered got up and said, I forgive you. Yeah. Tears were streaming down his face. See the power of that versus the power of just screaming? Yeah. Right? Like if anything was going to change him, it was that, not the other stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's something interesting in that. Like forgiveness actually, some people think, oh, that way they'll get away with it. Well, no, no, maybe that's a better way of changing people. You know? Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Who knows? The wheels of justice turn slowly here in Canada. The government of BC's coroner's report on the case, released in 2013, indicated the results of phase one of the Braidwood Commission. Quote, The first inquiry resulted in 19 recommendations relating to facets of police training. The manner and circumstances under which conducted energy weapons may be deployed, testing of such weapons, ensuring the implementation of a reporting system concerning deployment, along with the appointment of a committee of the Legislative Assembly to conduct a further review of conducted energy weapons, end quote. The coroner then summarized his findings, quote, I find that Robert Jakansky died in Richmond on October 14, 2007 of cardiac arrhythmia in the presence of a physical altercation and multiple deployments of a conducted energy weapon. I classify his death as a homicide. Homicide is a death due to an injury intentionally inflicted by the action of another person. Homicide is a neutral term that does not imply fault or blame. End quote. On December 12, 2008, the Criminal Justice Branch of British Columbia had issued a statement finding that although the RCMP officer's efforts to restrain Jakansky were a contributing cause of his death, the force they used to subdue and restrain him was reasonable and necessary in all circumstances. Thus, there would not be a substantial likelihood of conviction of the officers in connection with the incident, and accordingly, criminal charges were not approved. Three of the officers remained on duty elsewhere in Canada, while the supervisor, Corporal Benjamin Monty Robinson, resigned from the force on July 20, 2012. Prior to a sentencing hearing after being found guilty of obstruction of justice, stemming from a vehicle collision that resulted in the death of a 21-year-old Vancouver man. The officers have been subject to criticism both in the media and informal proceedings before the Braidwood Commission of Inquiry. The officers were served notices of misconduct by the commission forewarning them the commissioner may include a finding of misconduct in its final report. The warnings allege specific but overlapping grounds for each of the four. The collective allegations are that they failed to properly assess and respond to the circumstances in which they found Mr. Jakansky. They repeatedly deployed their taser without justification and separately failed to adequately reassess the situation before further deploying it. The notices alleged that afterwards they misrepresented facts in notes and statements, furthered the misrepresenting before the commission, and provided further misleading information about other evidence before the commission. 
the four officers each sought judicial review to prevent the commission from making findings based on the notices. The petitions were dismissed. Three of the officers appealed and lost. In July of 2013, one of the three officers was cleared of perjury. The remaining two officers stood trial in 2014. On February 20, 2015, Constable Quessy Millington, the RCMP officer who fired the taser on the night Robert Jakansky died eight years previously, was found guilty of perjury and colluding with his fellow officers before testifying at the inquiry into Jakansky's death. And on June 22, 2015, was sentenced to 30 months in prison. According to Global News, Constable Bentley launched a civil suit against the force in 2016 alleging the Mounties made him a scapegoat for public criticism. The force denied that in its official response. On May 31, 2019, it settled. The terms of the settlement were confidential. The Global News report continues. Monty Robinson, one of the other Mounties on the scene when Jakansky died, told Global News it was hush money. Robinson, who no longer works for the RCMP, urged people to read Blamed and Broken, a book from journalist Kurt Petrovich that reveals the, quote, tragic impact of those fleeting seconds on the people involved, Jakansky's mother and the four Mounties. The book is an interesting one. It does paint the RCMP and the members who were present at Jakansky's death in a more positive light. It also indicates that Jakansky was a chronic alcoholic whose body was in decline and his heart was vulnerable, which resulted in his death from the application of the taser. Constable Millington's lawyers hit on this heavily during court proceedings against the officer, essentially blaming Jakansky for his own demise. I will link to this book, The Complex Web of Inquiries and Legal Proceedings Against the RCMP Officers Involved in the show notes for this episode. A couple of asides before we finish. In November of 2019, Zofia Chazowski died after suffering a stroke during a trip to Poland. And on April 11, 2020, Justice Thomas Braidwood passed away at his home in West Vancouver after a battle with lung cancer. Quote, He was really a fair judge, a guy who really cared about people, said former B.C. Attorney General Wally Opel, who had tapped retired Judge Tom Braidwood to conduct the probe. Quote, he was a sound person, objective. It was controversial. The police had tasered a guy to death, and their position was that they had done everything that their training had taught them to do. He went through it all and wrote a remarkable report. Now the police have new guidelines and new procedures before they use tasers. So he left a mark. End quote. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 201, The Tragic Death of Robert Jakansky. Matthew, now you want to have a little bit of a forum here to yeah. have a conversation. <laughs> so One-sided my, conversation. My soapbox again. Okay, here's Matthew and his soapbox. <laughs> here's a very brief summary of your rights when photographing or filming police in Canada. Okay. Um, first, there is no law, there's no law in Canada that prevents a member of the public from taking photographs or video in a public place other than some limitations related to sensitive defense installations. Right. Second point, there's no law in Canada that prevents a member of the public from taking photographs or video of a police officer executing his or her duties in public or in a location lawfully controlled by the photographer. In fact, police officers have no privacy rights in public when executing their duties. They don't. Right? Okay. Um, the next point, preventing a person from taking photos or video is 
is an infringement of the person's charter rights. Mm -hmm. uh, next point, you cannot interfere with the police officer's lawful execution of his or her duties. So don't get in the way. Mm -hmm. But taking photos or video does not in and of itself constitute interference. Right. The next point, a police officer cannot take your phone or camera simply for recording him or her as long as you are not an obstruction. If they want that, they want to take your camera, they need a court order. Uh -huh. um, the next point, these privileges are not reserved to the media. Everyone has these rights. Mm -hmm. A police Next one, a police officer cannot make you unlock your phone or show him or her your images on your phone. Right. They can't do that. And the last point, a police officer cannot make you delete any photos. I want everyone to know that. Right? Right. Because people are asked to hand over their phone. All the time. All the time. And or told to unlock it, and then the police officer will delete yeah, or, the photos. Or stop recording. They're not allowed to. They're yeah. not allowed to tell you to do that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned um, as long as you're not an obstruction. So yeah. I do see instances where the person filming gets in the officer's face. Can't do that. Yeah, and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? At that point, you're being an obstruction to step what... Step back I, and record. Yes, right? exactly. Don't get involved in any way. Because a picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah. Just get it. Just Yeah, shut it. your pie hole and step back and take pictures. And take pictures. Yeah. And, and the flip side of that is, you know, don't be a dick to police. Have some respect as well. Yeah. And the majority of them are actually going to be respectful and good good cops as well. So I'm not saying go out and do it, right? I'm saying, hey, let's get a little bit of a balance here. I've had good interactions with police throughout my life. Me too. I used to like to drive a little too fast. So mm. uh, I've had, let's say, a speeding ticket or two <laughs> or three. Anyway, um, but I, I realized at the time, you know, like, I, they had me dead to rights. I'm yeah. not going to say, no, I didn't do it. No, you know, whatever. I The last time I was going really fast and the cop said, you know, we could take your car. And I said, if that's what you feel that you need to do, you go right ahead and do it because you got me. Okay. And he didn't feel like he needed to do that. Yeah. So whether whether or not he, I wasn't bluffing, you know. I was just being honest, like, yep, if that's what you need to do, because you got me. Yeah. Like, what am I going to say? You're wrong? Well, you can argue that. You can go to court. You can spend a lot, all this time, or you can just take your lumps. What do you mean, take your lumps? Well, that's take a your, funny saying. Take your lumps is like, okay, you made your bed, you lie in it. Okay. Yeah. Let's take your lumps. Is yeah, it? exactly. It's, um, yeah, I've had some good interactions with police as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, don't be a wiener to police, even even if the policeman is a wiener to you, don't be a wiener back. I think I, I picked up a cockpit in a gay bar in Riga once. A where? Riga. Where's Riga? Oh, Mike. I don't know where this is. You mustn't either, because you're Googling You don't it. know, I'm not Googling it. <laughs> Do you know where Latvia and Lithuania are? No, I don't know where those okay. places are. You're an idiot. I was Googling it to show you on a fucking map. <laughs> of course I know where the... I just don't know where Riga is. I've never never had cause to know anything about Eastern Europe. I just haven't. True. I, 
You know, like it's it's just not come up. Yeah. Transylvania. That's about it. Like Transylvania six five thousand. Yeah, Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> Those are that's my extent of Eastern Europe. Maybe a little bit of Chernobyl, uh, Ukraine. I'm not calling it the Ukraine because I know that's wrong. I've been corrected on that before. Who corrected you? Um, somebody who cared. A Ukrainian? Uh, I don't know if they were Ukrainian or not, but okay. they were somebody who uh, mentioned that calling it the Ukraine indicates the old language used when, during Soviet times. I did not know that. Yep. So you call it Ukraine because that is a country. As a, like, yeah, people wouldn't say the Canada. Right, exactly. Anyway, that's that's my bit of a soapbox. Ooh, the Nova Scotia. The Nova Scotia. I think that's fair, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that fair? What did Nova Scotia do to you? Because it's the it's eastern the, province. It's the little... The eastern, the east coast that we don't know what to do with. Well, let's get on to some voicemails. <laughs> That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So we, we tried to listen to a couple of voicemails. The first one was blank. Somebody chickened out. Somebody just chickened out. And then the next one was a salesperson from the 1-800 company that I use. But uh, he was calling himself a customer advocate. Right. So Which is a fancy marketing way of saying, sales. I want to sell you some shit. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't want anything else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's listen to this one. It looks like it's from Ottawa. Hi, Mike and Matt. Uh, this is Melanie from Ottawa. I just had the opportunity to listen to the FLQ um, episode, which, yes, I know, I'm really behind. But um, I have a funny story about the FLQ crisis. My grandfather was serving military, um, and he was in Montreal when everything was happening. And he had met up with a line of protesters and ended up um, losing his cool little and headbutting one of the protesters um, that was there. Um, a few years later, my father is talking to one of his best friends at school, and one of his best friends is talking about how his father was uh, protesting in downtown Montreal during the October crisis and a soldier had had butted him in the head and my father had stayed silent for years about the fact that it was most likely his own father that had had butted his best friend's father in the head um, during the October crisis but I thought it was just really funny love what you guys are doing love the show absolutely amazing um, I've been listening for a while now and will continue to listen and I can't I really can't say it. So all I'm going to say is please go poop in your duke. Okay. Have a great day. Bye. I love that some people can't get themselves. Out. I know. That, that, she was brought up correctly. Yeah. That was very polite. <laughs> that, that's, that's What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, grandpa headbutted this dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, boy. But yeah, I love little stories like that. Little connected stories mm. for the show are... Always so fun for me. Looks like we have another one from Ontario. Got a few Ontario calls. Matthew, your peeps are calling in. Let's let's have a listen. 
Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Jennifer calling from Kitchener, Ontario. I've been listening to the podcast for over a year now and wanted to finally chime in with a voicemail. I was listening to the Stopwatch Gang episode when Matthew brought up Jimmy's lunch. I'm happy to report that they're still up and running. My husband is the head brewer of a small craft brewery just a few doors down from Jimmy's, and whenever he has an early morning brew day, he always gets breakfast from there. I haven't had it myself, but he has only good things to say about them. Um, As for the podcast, I just wanted to say I've loved listening to you guys while I'm at work. It just helps me get through the day a lot faster. Um, I would like you guys to enjoy a Nanaimo bar for me. And I won't tell you to go shit in your hands, but I guess I just did. So, whoops. All right. Hope you have a good day. Bye. Wow, the Ontarians are very polite, Matt. That re- oh, that warms my heart that Jimmy's Lunch is still going. Jimmy's Lunch. I don't recall you talking about like that. It's like Little Diner. And yeah. when I used to go there, there's this, the waitress was about 300 years old. She has to be long gone now, right? Yeah. And if you wanted more coffee, she'd just like, just go be on the counter and get it yourself, hon. So you like, just go up and grab your coffee. Just because she didn't want to do it, probably. And, and I'm not going to have it in an IMO bar for you. I don't like them. They're too sweet. You don't like Nanaimo bars? No, I'd, I'll take a butter tart over a Nanaimo bar. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, let's just give this one a try. G'day, lads. Uh, this is Patrick from Perth, Ontario, a long-time listener. Uh, Christy from Canadian True Crime suggested you fellas way back in the day, and I've been a fan ever since. My favorite episode is still uh, the Halifax Explosion. I really think you knocked it out of the park with that one. I, I love I love every episode, but that one's just so good. The the thing about the church bell landing like eight kilometers away or whatever it was, you know, amazing. Um, I just wanted to bring up something about Tim Horton. Very Canadian thing. Justin Bieber is selling some hats there now, some beanies, they call them. I think this is something that needs to be discussed on the podcast, that Tim Horton, with their double-doubles, are selling toques, but they're using the name Beanie. Yeah, know about that. Anyway, love your show, and uh, I hope I hope you guys uh, don't shit in your Justin Bieber Beanie. Okay, take care. Bye. <laughs> I, I, I have to agree with him. Maybe maybe they just don't want to associate double doubles with Tukes because that would mean that they were promoting us, promoting our show. Yeah, I would I would definitely crap in a Justin Bieber hat. Yeah, I saw the whole Justin Bieber thing holding up the Timbits and like barf. Yeah, so he's from Perth. Yeah, I wonder if he's ever like they have like a really big cheese in Perth. (laughs) What? Like it's like this big cheese oh is that their sort of roadside attraction yeah the mammoth cheese or something it's called oh good lord yeah well i went let's, is let's it edible or... or is it like just I, a I statue of some well, description if it's edible and it's been there for a while it's probably going to be like blue cheese because it's rotted right Blech. let's go to perth and find out <laughs> okay that sounds good and that is it for voicemails this week uh Again, you can leave one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you anyway. Hear from you? Yeah. <laughs> Just call us. <laughs> call us. <laughs> well, 
I actually keep going, did. keep going. It's fun. <laughs> no, but I actually did like a voice, uh, uh, a voicemail out. So I don't even have to do this anymore. Oh. Oh. You suck. I do. I guess it's time to move on to Patreon. Let's see if anybody gave us some love this week. Patreon love. Patreon love. Best love there is. Puberty. Puberty love. Oh my God, what the hell is that? That was the song that are. made the uh, Killer Tomatoes freak out. Puberty. Puberty love. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You've never seen Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? Nine. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish we could have like watch parties for uh, Dark Poutine and watch all kinds of good things. Uh, obviously, one of the things we would probably watch are true crime docu documentaries, but I am big time into cult films. Like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is one. There's Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. No, so it was uh... a bed that essentially eats people when they lie down on it. And there's also a refrigerator that eats people. And Night of the Lepus, which is uh, a movie about uh, giant rabbits that ravage a town. It's not like Day of the Triffids. No, but they're bunnies. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever seen Day of the Triffids? Of course I've seen Day of the Triffids. That's a proper cult movie. Uh, it is. the Okay. It is the 28th. Looks like we have one patron this week. And... It is Belinda, and Belinda is from New Auckland, Australia. Australia. New Auckland. Yeah. So what does Belinda do there in New Auckland, Australia? I've, I've used this one before. I'd be very confused. She sits there at the airport and tells people... They're not at the right Auckland. Oh, right. If they yeah. want New Zealand, they, <laughs> they got to fly another eight hours. <laughs> yeah, I got to get back on a plane. Have you been to New Zealand? No. I, oh, okay. I, I have a very good friend who mm -hmm. does some design work for me. Shout out to Georgia. Um, and she's moved there. But And I've meant to go, but by the time I get to Sydney, the last thing I want to do is another flight. Right. <laughs> it's such a long flight. So it you've been to Sydney then? A bunch of times, yeah. Yeah. I have never been to that part of the world. I, you gotta I, go. I've never been much of any place, really. Go. But, yeah. we, Hey, I think we should, like, if we get enough people listening in any country, like a certain number. Yep. We should, like, it should flick a switch. That means we have to fly there for a weekend and, and meet people. Oh, there you that go. That way it'll force us to travel. That makes sense. So I guess that's it for Patreons this week. Thank you so much. Next up, we have our Donut Money donors, and it looks like our good friend Angela Barnes, a longtime Yumber Yarder, has provided us with a little donut money. And Thank she you, said, Angela. She's from Keswick, Ontario, by the way. She says, enjoy, guys. Well, there you go. I like it when people keep it simple so I don't have to read a lot and my mumbly mouth doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> your, your mumbly mouth. My mumbly mouth. Keswick. She's from Keswick. Yeah. Um, what do you think that Angela Barnes does there in Keswick, Ontario, as he gives Matthew time to Google Keswick? I'm not Googling Keswick. Okay, you're just off the top of your head then. What does she do in Keswick? Yeah. She runs... um. 
I think that's on the lake. I think it's on the lake. Boat rentals. She runs... Boat rentals. She runs boat rentals? Sorry, Mike's telling me not to put my hand... I play with my moustache. Yeah. Sometimes while I'm talking. But it's like... So here's what... And and I go like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we can't hear you. I think Keswick's on some sort of lake. Okay. And so she does... She has swan-shaped paddle boats that she runs. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I would love to go on a swan-shaped paddle boat. I would go with you, Matthew. Yeah, that would be fun. And if, Wouldn't like, that be if a little a romantic? Occasion, if somebody's going to like, like um, ask somebody to marry them, she actually has a violinist that will go on another one and, and play music beside them. Oh, that's yeah. very and then, nice. And then they can, yeah. And, but it's hard. Like they can't, um, uh, the one person, I was going to say the guy, but it doesn't matter. It's really hard to get on your knee to ask somebody to marry you in a swan-shaped paddle boat. Well, so you kind of have to just turn sideways and ask them. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, good for them. Uh, that's it for a Patreon. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/slash/DarkPoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal. PayPal. You can send for a one-time donation. You can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. I am going to record this too. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website, or just search for it on Amazon or anywhere else, even your local bookstore. If they don't have it, ask them, and they'll order it for you. And speaking of our website... Hey, do you have any of that Murder, Madness, and Mayhem? So my friend Alan (laughs) uh, went into the bookstore in Mm. Bridgewater, where I'm from, right, and noticed that... My book was at the back of the store. Right. He had a conversation. Now it's at the front of the oh, store. Oh, lovely. Well, yeah. yeah, you're from there. It should be pride of place in the window Well, with yeah. a life-size cutout. My mom has already <gasps> been in there. I want a life-size cutout of Mike. No, you don't. I Nobody do. does. I do. Nobody with does. With the little electronic things, your hand waves. Oh, God. Can I get one? You know what? Take a picture and order one from somewhere. You still haven't given me any dark poutine swag. Don't say that. (laughs) Don't say that. I'm I'm allowed to say it. I'm sending it for Christmas. I'm going to say it. And I want you to record this and I want everyone to know. No. (laughs) All right. Damn you. You control the editing. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Oh, dear. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com. Uh, For show notes and other cool stuff, please take the time to give Dark Patina a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Paw de bad apple. Paw de bad apple. Uh, Plus de good egg. Plus de good egg. Uh, Or or what would it be? Bonif. Bonif. (laughs) Be a bonif, not a... a Pa, not a uh, mal mal apple yeah, mal palm mal palm <laughs> <laughs> look listen Let's, anyway we're bilingual up here in canada we're be belong we're belong <laughs> <laughs> anyway we're really sorry to uh quebec especially <laughs> until next week bye-bye bye
Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.